Hi everyone, I'm Maddie Demchik, and today I have the pleasure to speak with Gil Baroque, President and CEO of Collier's US, um, as part of another episode of our Philanthropy and Executive Speaker Series. Gil, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Maddie. Good to be here. Thank you. So first, why don't you just walk us through your background, where you grew up, and how you got to where you are today, and a little bit about your current role. Sure. So I uh, am originally from South Africa, uh, born and raised there in, in the Cape Town Jewish community. Um, when I was 17, uh, sort of right as I was starting college, I moved to the U.S. and I went to school, undergrad at the University of Pittsburgh. I had a, a sister who's quite a bit older than me that was on the medical faculty there. So it was a natural fit. My parents didn't immigrate when I did. They came later on. And so I went to undergrad at Pittsburgh and then uh, by the time I was ready to graduate, I worked for a year in Pittsburgh, but at that point, my parents had immigrated to the U.S. and were living in San Diego, and my family migrated west, and so that's how I ended up in L.A., and I went to work for Arthur Anderson at that time, was one of the large accounting firms, no longer exists. Uh, I then went from Arthur Anderson to uh, work for a client uh, by the name of Dole Foods, Pineapple and Bananas, worked for them as controller for five years. And then followed a boss of mine, recruited me to CBRE, which is a competitor to Collier's, a large competitor to Collier's in the real estate services space. And I was there for 15 years. Uh, the ultimate role I had there was a CFO of that public company. Uh, and uh, so I was financed all the way. And then Collier's, a smaller competitor, approached me for an operations role uh, for their U.S. business, uh, which, I, uh, which I eventually took in uh, 2017. And at the end of 2019, was promoted to uh, CEO of the U.S. business for Collier's, and I've been in that role uh, ever since. And uh, Collier's is very different from CBRE. It's a, it's a much more entrepreneurial environment. Um, CBRE is a, more of a corporate top-down, uh, both excellent companies, but just different cultures. And uh, this one has sort of fitted my personality better. So it's been a lot of fun. I had a, a wonderful, you know, I've had great uh a great ride throughout my career. I'm very thankful for it. But this one is is particularly good because I sit at the head of the U.S. business. And because we're decentralized and entrepreneurial, um, I have accountability to, to our global uh, corporate function. But there's not a lot of intervention. I get to make a lot of the decisions along with the leadership team in the U.S. And what we do, just for some of the listeners that may not know, we're a service provider in the real estate space. So we do we broker transactions, leasing and sales. We manage commercial properties. It's all commercial. And we do valuations of commercial properties. Thank you for sharing. So sure. now you've mentioned, you know, recently, the past year is having a promotion and stepping into a leadership role. So for our students, um, looking back on whether your current position or further back in your career path, what are some of the most important factors that you have kind of, that have determined your success as a leader? Uh, great question. So you have to have the technical or functional expertise to do the job. So, you know, whether that's, a you know, in my case, undergrad in, in, in business and economics, an MBA, which I may or may not have needed, but certainly if you have an undergraduate in psychology and you want to go into business, then obviously, you know, the MBA would be helpful. So you need the technical training, the, 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 the university training and the technical skills. Um, then I think you've got to work hard, right? And, and you've got to work harder than anyone. I mean, to really be successful, 
I'll give you an example. When I go into a meeting, I'm briefed, right? And, and I, nobody briefs me. I brief myself. So I, depending on what the meeting is and who it's with, I'll be more or less brief. But if there's a document to read before a particular meeting, I'm going to read that document, right? And I'm going to read it pretty thoroughly to be well prepared. Uh, because that's the first thing. If you don't know what you're talking about, you lose respect right away. And, you know, you, you, they call those leaders empty suits, right? They got there somehow on good looks and charming personality, but there's not a lot of substance. And it tends to fall apart fairly quickly. And I don't want to be the person that people talk about behind their back, right? So you got to be informed, number one. Number two, um, that's the basic. And then number two is really... It, it's a buzzword or it was a buzzword. I'm not sure it is anymore. Your, your graduate students would know better than me, but we used to talk about and thought we were you know, pretty progressive talking about emotional intelligence. I think they still teach that today and I think it's still topical. And you know, it, it, it's more than a buzzword. You really have to practice it. So you gotta be self-aware, know your shortcomings, know your strengths, but be emotionally intelligent about the other person's or people's shortcomings and strengths and then play to those, right? And, and then the last thing I'll say, which probably doesn't sound too ethical for leader of a large division of a public company, is don't be too principled. And by that, I mean, you know, you have to be flexible, right? So, so you have a set of beliefs. I'm not talking about, you know, doing the wrong thing or, or not being ethical. But if you believe X, you have to be open to Y. And, and, and if you're so principled that X is the way it is, you know, that, then, then that is probably not not a a great way to be if you're trying to reach compromise and advance the ball so i think those are the primary things and they're really all soft skills that um a lot of them are natural but i think they can be learned as well those are really great messages i think we all can kind of learn from all those things and implement them so switching gears a little bit um i want to talk a bit about philanthropy and kind of what it means what it looks like it looks different for every person so what does philanthropy mean to you? Your definition of it, maybe how you put it into practice in your life. Yeah, uh, so this is not an original thought, but if, you, if you're involved in philanthropy, you've got to bring, I've been told, work, wisdom, and wealth. Um, and so I've served on a number of secular boards, uh, not currently, uh, but I have served on a number of, my, my job takes up a lot of my time and then what's left for family and a bit of exercise. And um, so the one charity I'm very focused, not really a charity, is my synagogue. And I've just gotten more and more involved over the years. I'm on the synagogue board, on the executive committee. It's a large conservative synagogue here in LA. And I'm, I'm the financial VP. And um, I take that role pretty seriously. You know, like any other board, secular board that I've served on, I work with really good people. Who are very dedicated and very smart and good at what they do, particularly in the executive committee. And that doesn't mean to be disparaging of the larger board, but that's who I work with most closely. And everybody takes it pretty seriously. And we're, you know, in a, in a way, a conservative synagogue, we're, we're sort of running a business in a way, spiritual business, but nonetheless. And so um, that's where I've committed my time uh, and hopefully my wisdom. I think I'm committing it. I hope the others do. And uh, and my and my wealth, right? And I prioritized it uh, over some other things. But I think it's those three things: putting where your, your money where your mouth, and then really doing the work. Like you can't just sit at board meetings and hypothesize and philosophize and not actually implement or help implement. Because you know, uh, uh, philanthropies or, or charities or not for profits. I mean, they rely heavily on their volunteers, right, to, to advance the ball. That's how it works. So um, that's what I would say about philanthropy. 
That's, that's a great definition. Um, so you mentioned it a bit, but I want to still talk about the balance between you said that you've been on boards in the past and work has, you know, takes up a lot of your time and mentioned, you know, those things you do and balancing all those things. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about that balance and maybe how that's changed from the beginning of your career to now, um, how it might look with different positions and yeah. Sure. So when I was a, a you know a staff accountant at Arthur Anderson many years ago, uh, and and moving up the ranks maybe senior, uh, there was an opportunity to go back and do my MBA as a fully employed MBA, work work and and do it part time. And I passed. I said I'll never be able to do right. I'll never be able to manage that. And um, it's an immature way of thinking. I wish someone had coached me because I then did go back and do my executive MBA down the road. It was a little bit easier, a little bit less demanding because you were further advanced in your career. But I did that, and, and in between the two years of that two-year program, we had a child, and um, I was in a much more senior role than I would have been five years prior had I done the fully employed. Again, the fully employed being a little more demanding than the executive because practical experience makes up for, you know, for, for what you don't have on the fully employed. And so it's just a matter of perspective, right? I think busy people, the more you take on, the more you can do. Um, I think that... Um, the right time for me to do it in hindsight would have been more junior in my career, but I didn't have the gravitas of thinking to actually make that commitment. How am I going to do that and, and, and do my work? And so then you start to think about how you delegate and how you get good people around you so you can have a life. But I would be the first to say that I'm not the most balanced person. So when talk to me about work-life balance, work is a lot of what I do and it's a lot of what defines me. And then I'm selective in my charities, right? The synagogue has pulled me in more deeply to where it precludes me from taking on other charitable roles. I mean, I have, but they would be like just as a board member, really just there to offer my brain and, and some money, right? For a cause I might believe in, but I couldn't really go deep. And I've kind of built boundaries to, to not do that, to not overextend. I still am overextended, um, but but not too overextended to where... I can't do what I need to do well, and then also have time for family. Um, I had a good friend uh, that was CEO of a large company, did a lot of philanthropic work, and we talked that we we talk about this. And I, I I'm going to quote him, although it's applicable to me, where he would say, "Well, I'm there for the important things. It's kind of how I'm wired. I'm certainly not going to get father of the year, uh, right? But as my kids have gotten older, I've got a junior in high school." And, and a sophomore at, at Wisconsin with you, um, you know, uh, it gets easier, right? Because there's there's less needs of, my kids have less needs. Um, and so um, uh, there's probably more time to do philanthropic and other work as you become more of an empty nester, right? But it's it's natural, it's a natural progression. And I, but the message I would have for, for the graduate students is it can be done. You just have to be realistic about the, your priorities and you have to set boundaries and not, not you know, try to stop yourself from uh, taking on too much because then you don't serve anybody particularly well. I definitely agree. And I think it's it's about balance and that balance might shift along to, along kind of your career path. But um, I think that's that's great messaging. Um, so just in general, maybe about one specific cause about your synagogue or more generally, what did you found motivates you to engage in your broader community? People. So it's all about the people. So, um, you know, I, 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 I probably different for different people because some people are very passionate about a particular cause and the people matter less. 
the cause is important, whether it's the synagogue, uh, you know, I, I've got some degree of involvement in APAC, some degree of involvement in um, in APAC ancillary networks that that um, that support uh, financially and and through time support members of Congress that are pro-Israel. Uh, you know, and that's a passion of mine, and, and and Israel is important to me. So, so, but but mostly it's the people in all of those cases, and including work. Mostly it's the people that I do it with, right? That are dedicated to a cause, hardworking, nice. You know, so you can have a social relationship, and often the professional or the volunteer leads to social. I mean, our, our synagogue executive committee are all very friendly with each other. Are we in each other's homes all the time? No. But there's a, you know, we have a common cause that's the basis of the relationship, and then it goes beyond that. We'll help each other out. There could be other reasons to tap one another. It, it, it becomes a network. But to me, it's all about the people. The mission is important, but it's, I hesitate. It's almost secondary. It, it's almost, I'm Jewish and I believe in Jewish causes, right? So that's a given. But the synagogue itself is important to me, but the people's what make up the synagogue, right? So the, the mission of the synagogue or of APAC is, is in some ways secondary to the people that I advance that mission with. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's good to know that we're always going to be surrounded by people. So it's important to, you know, get get along with them. And right. I think I agree with you there. Um, so when you think back on your philanthropic experience and it moving forward, it can be, this is a loaded question. It can be one thing, it can be multiple things. But what are you most proud of when you think back about your philanthropic activity and or in, and just in general? Um, a few things. So, so, so one of them is clearly going through COVID in my position with the synagogue and helping us, uh, frankly, get money from the government through the PPP program and navigating the financial aspects of COVID with things shutting down and whatnot is probably uh, one of the most rewarding things that I've done. I worked very closely with uh, a colleague of mine who was the financial vice president at the time. I think I was administrative vice president and our executive director. We formed a you know, like a little committee to navigate with other input, but it basically was the three of us navigating that. And um, they became, I was friendly with them, but they became, you know, we got closer and we really had, to, you know, not quite survival, but but a little bit uh, of that, of, of people not getting sick and also financial survival. So that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of, or the accomplishment, we navigated that, we came out the other side and we came out okay with the help of the government and, and our congregation. So that's probably what I'm, uh, most proud of. Um, I'm also probably uh, proud of the fact that I um, I uh, allot a certain amount of money every year to give to charities, and I prioritize them based on something I was taught a long time ago. You know, if you're on the board of something, you should be given the most of that, and then so on down to causes you believe in. And it doesn't matter what you give; it just matters that you have priorities and you prioritize where you're most involved. So for me, it's the synagogue, but APAC comes pretty close behind that. Um, so there's that. And then I'm, and then a few years ago, I was in the fortunate position uh, to establish a donor advised fund, which is a fund you put money into before you give it out. So you don't decide the charity, but you can, in a tax advantageous way, put it into a fund. You can't ever take it out. So it has to go to a charity. And there's, you know, we've built up a substantial amount in there. I mean, substantial is different for different people, but between the returns on those investments and just what I've continued to contribute, I'm very proud of that because I don't know where I'm going to give it, but I do know this. It's going to be meaningful somewhere, um, whether that's the synagogue or some other cause. 
uh, secular cause. We've got my wife and I believe in a few secular charities as well, research and medical research and so on because of diseases that have impacted various family members. So I don't know where it'll go, but I know we're going to do it and I know it's going to make me feel good and it's there. So we can't take it back, right? So even if someone says, oh, uh, that was a bit, it's done. And so I feel good about that commitment and not so much about where it goes, but just that it'll go to um, something other than us. And I've been fortunate to have good jobs that have paid well and been able to build up some wealth. So then out of, I don't want to say out of guilt, but out, out of, not out of guilt, but out of karma, like, you you know, what can I do to help? Oftentimes we feel very helpless, like there's a situation and you can't, um, you can't help it, but you can give some money that will help. Money doesn't solve everything for sure not right but but it does help an awful lot when there's a crisis in ukraine uh and i'm very um i i I, i'm very uh sensitive to those types of things so when there's a call to action you know i want i do try to participate through that donor fund or, or or not so giving back is important right if you've done well um you know and 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 everybody has problems right everybody has issues to deal with that's life but if you've done relatively well, then then it is incumbent upon you to give back, and it feels good. So, uh, hopefully, that gives you some sense. Yeah, those are some really great stories and causes, and just kind of lessons to learn from. So, shifting gears once again, um, you mentioned obviously being on the board of your synagogue and heavily involved there. But I think this question that I'm going to ask can mean much more than that, and I think everyone answers it differently. But I was just wondering if you could kind of speak a bit more about what being Jewish means to you, however, you know, you feel fit to answer that question. Sure. Um, you know, I grew up in a in an orthodox environment. When I grew up in South Africa, there was only orthodox or reform. There was no conservative. Um, and we were conservative Jews, funnily enough. So we would drive to services. We would go, but we would drive. Um, but we went when we got in the service, it was Orthodox men and women separated. And so that's all I knew. And then I came to America and, you know, discovered conservative, which really the service then fit more my lifestyle uh, or more the way I practice Judaism. For me, I, um, I'm not a, I, 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 I love the tradition. I love a, a, a musical service, right? That's what speaks to me. I love a good sermon. I don't study Talmud, right? It's just not me, but I do like, to hear a good sermon, I do like to to engage in Jewish learning that way. I had a education in South Africa, Jewish education K through twelve, so it's deeply ingrained. Do I believe in everything? No. Uh, I've gotten more skeptical as I've gotten older because when I was younger, I was just told this is the way it is, and that's what you do. Do I go to services with regularity? Some regularity. It's meaningful to me. It feels good. I feel good after I go. Um, but I'm not a regular, you know, I'm not a regular attendee, but I identify anti-Semitism bothers me, anti-Jewish bothers me, um, you know, Jewish causes are important to me, Jewish education is important to, me, important to me, I guess continuity of the Jewish people is is important to me, and it is in jeopardy in a lot of, in a lot of ways, so what, what I can do in my own small way to help that continue uh, is important to me. And but 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 if I had to sum it in a word, I grew up in a very traditional home, and that that's ingrained in me. And so I have a, a, a an empathy, if you will, for things Jewish. And uh, it's just it it's just, it does define me. I appreciate that and you sharing that. So once again, to kind of round us out here, we like to end with uh, some fun 
Uh, we call it our rapid fire round. So I'll ask you some questions for our students to get to know you outside of the office and outside of philanthropy and just you as a person. So you'll answer in one to two words, just first thing that comes to mind. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So first, your favorite series that you've recently watched. Succession. I just caught up last night on the last episode. So we can talk about that later. <laughs> what is your favorite place either you have or you hope to travel to? Hawaii. Okay. okay. Um, is there a book that has had the biggest impact on your life? A book that has had the biggest impact on my life. I, you know, I, so I'm going to answer it this way and it's more than two words, which is I don't have a lot of time for reading. Um, and so most of my reading is, is, uh, business related or the wall street journal. So I don't know that that doesn't quite answer it. Maybe it says I'm very boring, <laughs> but I can't in two seconds, think of a book that I've read in, in recently that has had, you know, changed my life in any way, but those things staying current does influence who I am and, and influence my opinions. Okay. Um, the most used app on your phone. Uh, is does email count as an app it uh, does it definitely it, does it's that or texting probably my kids laugh because you know i have so few apps you know but in terms of a real app um probably the directions or uber that's a good one i definitely use those a lot as well what is your favorite jewish food chop tearing it's a new one haven't heard that one yet and then you sort of did it earlier but we'll ask it kind of right now again what is one word that you associate with being jewish traditional yeah okay well that's all the time we have and all the questions i have for you but this was lovely and thank you so much for joining us and sharing about your career and philanthropy and letting us get to know you a little bit better thank you maddie i enjoyed it as well thank you <laughs>